Let's begin our time together with a word of prayer and go to the Lord and ask him to be in this place today. Father, we are here to lift high who you are, what you have done, Lord, to lift high the cross of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, we ask that in this hour that your spirit would move among us, that your spirit would move deep in our hearts, help us to see with clear eyes. Lord, I pray that you would lift the darkness, lift the blindness that may be hovering over the eyes of our hearts. And I pray today that you would move deeply and decisively to save those who are lost, to uh, encourage those who are fainting. Lord, to help us to be on the right path as true worshipers. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. John chapter 3, so you can find your way there. And uh, I was reading this week uh, an article in the Atlantic by a guy named Arthur C. Brooks. Arthur C. Brooks writes on human happiness. He's a professor at Harvard University. And uh, really an interesting article. Here was the title of the article. How to Want Less. The secret to satisfaction has nothing to do with achievement, money, or stuff. He's a happiness expert. Satisfaction. And uh, I will tell you that in the article, I'll just kind of summarize it for you. And there were some helpful things, I think. Uh, it was a really long one. You might look it up and read it and see what you think. But here's basically what he said. He said, there are people in history who have shed some light to help us to know how to be satisfied, how to find true satisfaction in life. And he's mentioned people like Thomas Aquinas. He mentioned the Dalai Lama. He mentioned the Buddha. And uh, he said, these people have helped us in some way to provide some light about how to be satisfied. But here's what he says. He, he presents satisfaction in mathematical formulas. He said, here is the modern formula for personal satisfaction. He says, satisfaction equals getting what I want. Satisfaction equals getting what I want. He said, that is, seems to be, in the Western world, how we view how to be satisfied in our lives. And here's what he says, doesn't work. That formula doesn't work. So here's what he proposes instead, using different things that he's found in history and, and, and in his practice and research and teaching. He said, here's a better formula. All right, is anybody writing this down? Here's your mathematical formula for satisfaction. Satisfaction equals, now this is a little more complicated. What you have divided by what you want. Satisfaction equals what you have divided by what you want. And he says, we tend to deal out here with the things that we want and trying to achieve them, he said, you know, that's not really going to satisfy. What we ultimately need to do is to want less, to desire less. So he sees, following the same train of thought that different people like Aquinas, and hey, even there are some bib biblical things about this, about contentment, all right? And so what he says is we desire way too much. So we got to control our wants. we got to suppress and push down, tamp down on these desires. 
I don't know that that's biblical. I would actually argue, though, that what he's dealing with here on both sides of the equal sign has everything to do with what we're talking about in these weeks, and that is worship. We're worshipers. We long to be satisfied. There is a need within us to find that which will satisfy our hearts. And so there are different pieces to the equation. But the fact is, we do want to be satisfied. And I would say that worship is ultimately about that. Finding that which satisfies, exalting in that which is satisfying. Lifting it up, enjoying it. All right, And it does have a lot to do with what we have and experiencing and getting that which we need and desire. So all of these pieces come into play as we think about worship. But I don't think the problem is that we desire too much. In fact, John Piper, I think it was John Piper who said, our problem is not that we desire too much. It's that we are satisfied with way too little. In other words, we try to be satisfied with little things, but our hearts, our spirits, our lives, we are created for God. And nothing less than God will ultimately satisfy. All right, so we're focusing in these Sunday mornings for a few weeks on the subject of worship, the topic of worship, and arising out of our study of the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 3, they were rebuilding the temple, but first rebuilding the altar. That is, restoring the kind of worship that God desires. And we saw last week that the worship that God desires for us, that He requires of us, that He created us for, is not just lip service. It's not just empty or physical religious rituals satisfying certain things that we do, but instead that God wants our hearts. Anybody remember I showed you the little snowman I made? I promised you no PowerPoint slides this week. So I gave you a little snowman, and here was this big center circle, and there were different parts of our lives. Does anybody remember what was in that center circle? Right, God wants to be there, but that is represents our spirit or our heart. Our heart or our spirit, and that needs to be full of God. And when that happens, we truly worship. But the fact is that we have stuffed other things. We've evicted God. Said, no, you know, we don't think it's, it's worth worshiping you. There are other things. I've got better ideas, other ideas. And so we basically eject God from that circle and we try to stuff other things that are smaller than God in it. All right, but, but ultimately worship begins in the human heart and spirit. And in John chapter 3 today, in John chapter 4 next week, we're going to see Jesus addressing worship in the human heart. So he's going to start there in the center the heart or the spirit. I'm going to say that those are roughly equivalent to the same thing. Sometimes we're looking at different aspects of, of uh, the inner life, but heart and spirit, I'm just going to put them together and say, I think biblically, we can argue that those are roughly the same. The heart and the spirit of a person, the inner person. And that's where worship starts. And if it's not there, if it's just out here on the periphery, it's not true worship. So, Jesus is going to speak right into the condition of our hearts, that deep seat of the human personality. You know, a person is only healthy or whole or integrated when the various capacities or dimensions of their life flow out of the human heart. 
All right. So, so some of the other capacities were the, the mind, our thoughts. What was another one? Our affections or our desires, our emotions, our feelings. Then there is the physical, our behaviors, and the social dimension. So we had those different dimensions. And to be integrated, to be healthy or whole, means to be all of those things in unison. Deriving from the deep seat of our being, and that is the spirit or the heart. That primary faculty that we have that relates to God and fellowships with God. So John chapter 3, we're going to meet a religious guy who is seeking to be satisfied. John chapter 4, we're going to go to the other end of the spectrum. A Samaritan woman who has a little bit of religion, but it seems that she's been trying to satisfy that craving, that longing within her in physical relationships and other things. And so we're going to look at these over the next two weeks, thinking about worship and the human heart. Let me give you my thesis. Let me give, get you the point so you can go ahead and go to sleep if you're tired or whatever. The point today, here is the thesis from this week and really from next week. Here's what I want to get across to you. We are natural born worshipers. But things have gone wrong. And in our natural state, we're not worshipers. But here's the key. There is an essential spiritual experience that must take place in us if we would be authentic worshipers. There is an essential spiritual experience that must take place if we are to be true or authentic worshipers. And thus experience satisfaction that we're created for. So John chapter 3, hopefully you're there. We're going to meet a man named Nicodemus coming to Jesus. He's looking to experience God. And I would say this about Nicodemus. He's looking in the right zip code. He's in the right vicinity. But he's not gotten deep enough. He doesn't understand this fact that there is a personal essential Spiritual experience that is required for the worshiper to know God. All right, so let's read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We're going to see Jesus give us this essential experience, and he calls it being born again. Here it is. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee, he's a Jew, he's a leader, he's a teacher of the Jewish people, these people of God. And he comes to Jesus by night. We're not sure that that's, you know, maybe because he doesn't want his friends to see that he's actually coming and seeking something from Jesus. But he comes to Jesus by night and he says, hey, we see something in you. I see something in you that I know comes from God. God is written all over the works that you're doing. And I want to know God. I want to be a part. I don't want to miss what God is doing. But he doesn't ask a question exactly. He doesn't make a real clear statement. Maybe it's just a conversation starter. We see that God's at work in you, Jesus. 
And then he waits. <laughs> Just a little bit of an odd statement to make. But I'm convinced that Nicodemus is saying, tell us the secret to having that much God in our lives, such that his work and his power flow through us. I want to be a part of this. And, and in that little conversation starter, Jesus doesn't mince any words. He dives very deeply and he says, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. You can't be a part, you can't enter into it without this essential experience that Jesus calls being born again. You know what? It's possible to be around what God is doing, but to never actually have a personal part in it. To see great signs and miracles and wonders and all those kinds of things. To be in the vicinity, the zip code, or right next to someone who has experienced a deep abiding work of God, but never experienced it yourself. And I think Jesus, out of compassion, tells Nicodemus, man, you haven't even scratched the surface. You don't understand. You've not latched onto the fact that there is this essential experience that you've got to have. If you want to be an authentic worshiper, if you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, if you want to belong to God, you have to have this. And let me just say this and go ahead and make one application about the church today. I, I think as we're thinking about rebuilding worship and, and what all that means, here's something I would say. We should not be content with people just coming in and attending a church service. In other words, we're glad when people come. We want people to come. But if all they do is sit in a pew and never personally have a heart change or an experience to where they come to know Christ, that's not enough. We should not just be content. Man, did you see how many were here today? I hope they enjoyed the worship. I hope they maybe, you know, thought it was really good. It's not enough. We want people to be born again, to experience this profound transformation that Jesus talks about. But we've got to figure out what that is. Nicodemus had to figure out what that is. Jesus had to teach and had to bring about this thing. So being born again, sometimes we use the term regeneration or born from above. So we need to latch onto that. Add that to your vocabulary. Regeneration, a transformation of the heart, being born Again, let's hear from Jesus what exactly this means. Because we're not sure, just like Nicodemus was not sure. So here is, in verses 4 through 6, the essential experience of being born again expounded. He gives us a little more. He says, it's being born of the water and the Spirit. So this being born again is equated by Jesus with being born of the water and the Spirit. Let's see it from the lips of Jesus. Verse 4 through 6. Nicodemus said to him, uh, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
So Nicodemus scratches his head. Uh, Jesus, I'm not really sure I'm tracking with you. How can a person who's already old be born again? Can't go back into his mother's womb and come out a second time? I'm not really sure. I don't understand what you're talking about. And he's kind of calling it into question. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you know, being a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees and a great teacher and a Bible scholar, it's not enough. Something has to happen to transform your heart. So Nicodemus pushes back. I don't really, I'm not really sure I see it. And Jesus basically replies this. Look, just because you don't see it or haven't experienced it doesn't mean it's not true. You really have no clue, Nicodemus. But in order, he says again, for a person to enter into the kingdom of God and experience what God has for them to become, I would say, a true worshiper, got to be born again. So worship is not being about born of Jewish descent. It's not being born to Christian parents and attending church. It's not a bunch of religious stuff and acts that you do. But it's a rebirth. It is a total transformation of your being. And I would point you again to our little diagram and say, Jesus is pointing to a new heart, a new identity that is not a fleshly birth. It's not a physical thing that we're talking about. It is a work of the Spirit, being born of the Spirit. All right? And God does it. Verse 6 indicates that it is born of the Spirit. God does a transforming work to give you a new life, to make you a brand new person. You are born again of the work of the Spirit of God. And he adds a little more detail in verse 5. He says, it's being born, Nicodemus, of the water and the Spirit. The water and the Spirit. Now, I'll tell you, people are all over the place about what in the world it means. But this is important. We're talking about the essential experience of becoming a worshiper and a Christian. So we need to chase this down a little bit and say, what does Jesus mean now? Being born of the water and the Spirit. I would say there are primarily three ways that people understand this. And the last one I'm going to give you is the one that I think is right. Number one, people understand being born of the water and the Spirit coming from the lips of Jesus. Sometimes as two separate things. That Jesus is saying, look Nicodemus, being born of the water is being born of the womb. Right? You come through, there's amniotic fluids, and I don't mean to get graphic and all of that, but that's being born of the water, that is, the day you were born. But then there is another day, being born of the Spirit. And when you say, ah, okay, maybe, maybe that's possible. That I, it's probably a legitimate translation or understanding of it, but I'm not sure that captures it all. Why would Jesus need to say anything at all about the water? But uh, some people see it as two parallel things or two distinct things that go on in unison. Namely, being born of the water is your baptism into Christianity, being, being baptized in the water, but that there is underneath or above that, if you will, a spiritual reality, that you are being baptized by the Holy Spirit. I think that is a valid thing to, to say. Yeah, it could mean that based on everything that we see in the Gospel of John, maybe. But I don't think that's immediately clear. I don't think Nicodemus would have gone, yep, I get it. I get it. Baptism, baptism of the Spirit, yeah. No, I think it's one thing. Being born of the water and Spirit is one thing. And so you have to ask yourself, well, what would Nicodemus have, have understood such that Jesus could make a point to him, give this little reference, and automatically he would go, oh, and I think what Jesus did is he references the Old Testament. A prophecy from Ezekiel. So write down in the margins of your Bible or somewhere on your 
paper is a reference in one place to the water and the spirit. So I'm going to read this for you. Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 through 27. I think this is what Jesus was talking about. I think this is what Nicodemus would have understood him referencing. referencing. So here it is. Prophet Ezekiel pointing to a future day when God is going to do something in salvation history that deals with the water and the spirit. He's going to transform people. So here it is. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will renew the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to obey my ordinances. Ezekiel is pointing forward to something that God is going to do in the future. A salvation experience that is going to totally transform people from the inside out. Rather than experience, expecting religion to transform people from the outside in. This is the coming of Jesus. And all that Jesus is doing. And all that he promises to do for us. Now listen. Here's a little bit of what we're talking about right now. What we need and desire. I think Jesus is helping Nicodemus feel and see his need. His deep and abiding need. That he may not even have been totally aware of. Here it is. Being born of the water and of the spirit. The water is an experience of cleansing from all of your sins. Nicodemus and all of these religious, you know, the Jews and the Pharisees, they were all about the sacrifices and about the blood, but it would just temporarily cover over sin, make an atonement for sin. But it didn't actually offer permanent forgiveness. And being born of the water, I think according to Ezekiel 36 is, that there is coming a day when we understand that God has done something to totally cleanse every bit of filth and sin and grime from our lives and from our accounts. A total wiping away of all of our sin debt. And he talks about your filthiness and all of your idols. All of that is going to be washed away. So he says, and when that happens, when you experience this cleansing from your sin debt, when you get forgiveness, I'm going to do something. I'm going to put in you a brand new heart or spirit. Where you have in the past had a heart of stone, a hard heart that was not responsive to God, did not look really ultimately to God for satisfaction. I'm going to give you a new heart, a soft heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that is responsive to me, a heart of a worshiper. And I'm going to put my spirit in you, my spirit in your heart. I'm going to commune with you in a special way like I've not done before in the past. My spirit is going to come and abide in the very center of your life and enable you to walk in obedience to my ordinances. And you'll be careful because my spirit will be there in your spirit and your heart will be sensitive to the things of God. So I would say that ex uh, essential experience that we need to have, folks, listen, is coming to God, to have our sins wiped away. That forgiveness and cleansing. But not just that. 
that we need a new heart, a personal transformation. And it is Jesus, the Bible says in the Gospel of John, that gives the Spirit of God without measure. It's one of the great promises of the Bible that Baptists are a little bit scared of. We're a little bit scared of the Spirit of God. And man, I'm going to tell you something. It's essential that we have the Holy Spirit of God coming into our lives. And we see that Jesus at Pentecost pours out in an unbelievable way, and he continues to pour out to those who come to him for forgiveness. He gives us his spirit to change us and to make us brand new. And so then we see this essential experience illustrated in verses 7 through 8. I think Nicodemus is still doing this right here. I don't know about this. I don't know about this. You know, I, you know the Jews were all about doing stuff. I want to do this. This is my religious ritual. I want to check off this box. I want, to, I want to do this thing to make sure that I'm okay with God. And Jesus is talking about an invisible experience, if you will. Something deep down in the heart. So Nicodemus is struggling with that. Let's look at verses 7 through 8. He says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, Nicodemus, why are you so amazed? Every day you go out and you see the effects of the wind blowing. You can drive down this highway right here and you can see metal that was screwed down to a roof. You can see where the wind has come and peeled it right off. You can see tree limbs down all over the place when a big windstorm comes. You have never seen the wind, but you've seen its effects. You don't know where the storehouses and the warehouses of the wind are, but I guarantee you there is not one person in here who denies that there is an invisible power called the wind. Anybody denier? Anybody flat earth, any of that kind of stuff? No, you know that the wind exists even though you have never, ever seen it, but you have seen its effects. You may have seen dust particles and leaves blowing along with the wind, but you've never seen the wind, yet you do not deny its power and its effect and I think Jesus is just trying to help him see look you can't see everything that you know is real and in the same way there is this essential experience that you can't see but you will see its mighty effects and now he begins to continue to illuminate this idea this is the last piece we'll read verses 9 through 15 as this essential experience of being born again now is really, I think, illustrated and really blown up. And he helps us to see why we need this. And that we should desire this. Need and desire. And I'm going to say to you today, there is not one thing in this world that you need, friends, more than this experience. There is not one thing that has a greater influence and impact on the outcome of your life and eternity more than this. But I just don't think that sometimes we see it and feel it. We're desiring all kinds of other things out here that we think are going to satisfy and bring us happiness and we've ignored this massive reality of a heart that is wayward and away from God. So let's see what Jesus would say to Nicodemus about this experience, verses 9 through 15. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know 
and we testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, I had John read at the beginning of the service some of the other things, and we'll talk about those really briefly. But I want to focus in on how Jesus answers Nicodemus about this experience. He said, you know, Nicodemus, I've come from heaven. And I understand more than you do what you need. And I'm telling you, you need this experience. And you need to feel that you need it. And he's struggling. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? We got the Old Testament and all these rituals given and we've not seen this. How can these things be? Nicodemus says, it doesn't square with my works-based religion. How can this be? And Jesus points back to a story from the Old Testament, again, that Nicodemus would have known very clearly. And it's a story from the book of Numbers about how God's so-called people were disobedient and distrusting. They did not operate in faith, did not believe God. And because of their disbelief and their disobedience, God sent a curse. He sent poisonous, venomous snakes to come down there in the wilderness, and those snakes began to bite. And many of the people died because of the curse that was brought about by their disobedience. So they began to cry out to God, and Moses asked for a cure. Lord, this curse has come upon us. Would you cure us of this curse? And God says, yeah, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to make a bronze serpent, a figurine of a bronze poisonous serpent, like the ones that is biting and killing people. And I want you to lift it up on a pole where everyone has access to see it. And those who are bitten by the venomous serpent and are sure to die, here's what I want them to do. I don't want them to lift a finger. I don't want them to call a doctor. I don't want them to suck the poison out. I don't want them to administer any kind of man-made cure. Here's what they're to do. They're to look at that serpent and be healed. Simply look to that cursed object. Understand that it's representative of their situation. Believe that God will cure them and be healed. It's an act of faith. Not trying to work out your salvation, but to look to God for it. And in that, the people would look at that serpent, having recognized their terrible predicament, understanding the deadliness of their situation, and basically look to God for the healing that they needed. And Jesus says, in the same way, the Son of Man has come from heaven to be lifted up just like that bronze serpent in the wilderness. Now this could get a little bit uh, confusing for us. But here's what we need to see. Folks, when our hearts are wayward from God, our hearts and our spirits are not in tune with God. We're not worshiping God. We do not know God. I would say to you, we are in a deadly predicament. John chapter 3 says that Jesus came not to condemn us, 
or condemn the world because you know what? The world is already condemned because of sin and disbelief. That's our situation. The wrath of God and the curse of God has already been made plain and sure about that. So Jesus didn't come down to condemn us, but he did come down to tell us about the predicament of our condemnation, that we are perishing in our sins, that we are in darkness and we need light, that we are in trouble. And sometimes we don't feel that because we're so busy with other things. We're so busy trying to do our religious duties to earn the approval of God rather than just coming back, recognizing that we are broken and looking to God's salvation. So God sent Jesus into this world to save us from our deadly predicament, to offer us cleansing, forgiveness, and healing, and restoration with the God we were created to know and to love. But how far we have gotten from Him. And I just want to say to you today, apart from God doing something to totally, radically transform us, we're dead men walking. There is an eternity and a place called hell for those who persist in continuing in disobedience and disbelief. Who say to God, I have no need of you. And if we die in that situation, we will spend eternity separated from the God who loves us, who created us to walk with him. And Jesus came down to show us, man, you're in trouble. And Jesus goes to a cross. They crucified Jesus. They give a death penalty. He's executed. A sinner's execution. And he's lifted up literally. That cross placed in a hole. And his dead body draped across that cross. And he's lifted up, actually. And we are meant to see that like that bronze serpent. That is where we're at. We are under a death sentence because of our sin and separation from God. And we're to look at that for our healing. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. Jesus goes to that cross to help us to see our predicament. But he doesn't stay dead. He comes up out of the grave. He's resurrected. And we're promised a resurrection to life as well if we follow Jesus. The cross of Jesus Christ and his bloody mangled body on it is shocking. Is it not? Is it not shocking that normal boys and girls, men and women come into a place 2,000 years later and sing with joy about a Roman death sentence. A Roman torturous execution. It's meant to be shocking. It's meant to shock us out of our sleepwalking and to help us to see our plight separated from God in our sins. But it is also supposed to help us to feel how much God loves us. 
that he came and provided a way where we could be transformed and changed. He sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it because he loves you that much. And we're meant to feel that. And we're meant to feel the love of the Father such that we would come back to his open arms when he says, you are broken. Come to me and let me heal you. You need forgiveness, let me forgive you. Your heart is a heart of stone. Let me give you a heart of flesh and I will pour out my very presence in your life. So I say all that, friends, to say this. There is an essential experience that we must encounter or have if we would ever be called a worshiper. We can be called singers. We could be called Pharisees. We could be called Bible scholars, Bible studiers. We could be called Baptists. We could be called a lot of things and not be on the right road. But there is an essential experience of the heart that is required before you can ever be a worshiper. All right? Let me make three applications as our invitation today and, and ask you to place yourself here. Where, where, where do you need to respond to this message? Number one, I would invite you to personally experience the new birth. Now that's a work of the Spirit that only the Spirit can do. But actually what it says is when we lift up Jesus and invite people to come to Him Repenting of our sins. And listen, folks, you've got you to deal with sin. You've got to admit that you've got it, that you're far from God, that you have filth and all of that in your heart and life, and you need forgiveness. You have to admit that. You have to see your need, and you come to the Savior and believe in Him. So you turn and you believe, and He does a work in your spirit. He gives you a brand new life. And I can tell you, I've been through that experience, and it's an amazing thing. Your eyes open to the glory of Christ. But I would say to you, no amount of religious activity, no giving of offerings, none of that kind of stuff is going to get you what you ultimately need. You've got to come to Christ. Say, no, no work that I do could ever atone for my sins. But I trust in what Jesus has done. Have the personal experience of being born again. Number two, I think an application is that we as a church need to think about, because we're thinking about worship and restoring and rebuilding it, I guess one of the things I've been convicted about is that we need to make sure that one of our main objectives when we come together, realizing that there are people like Nicodemus who are searching for God in religious places. They come into this place and they say, man, I want to, I, I want to be made right with God. I know that I need something. Can you show me the way? I would just say to us, as we come together in corporate worship, one of the things that we need to be very clear that we're doing is lifting up Jesus and exalting Jesus and sharing the gospel and making sure that it's very clear to people, hey, it's not just about some kind of religious encounter. It's about a transformative experience. And so what we need to do is to lift up Jesus Share the gospel, tell the gospel, sing the gospel, and make sure that we're not getting ourselves in the way, but that we point people straight to Jesus Christ. And not putting stumbling blocks, not putting other religious things. It's, it's faith plus this, plus this, plus this. No, 
We tell people, you know Jesus, and you come to experience him by repentance and faith. Come to Jesus. So we lift up Jesus. Keep the Christ and his cross central. Sometimes we don't talk about the cross. Sometimes we talk about all the, the love of Jesus, but we don't talk about the cross that is the greatest sign and symbol of his love. We talk about all the good things about Jesus, but we omit the death part. But we've got to continue to lift high Jesus on the cross, all right? And then I would say this. Daily living by the Spirit. If you are a Christian, this says that you're born of the water, that is forgiveness and cleansing from your filth and sins and forgiven, and you're born of the Spirit. You have this brand new life-giving Spirit within you. And one of the struggles that we'll have as a Christian is whether we're going to yield to the Spirit of God within us or we're going to walk in the old ways of the world and of the flesh. And this becomes one of the struggles. Man, I mean, I, I battle it every day, every week. Some weeks it seems like I'm victorious in it. Some weeks not. But we continue to what? To yield to the Holy Spirit that is within us. That is your reality. If you've come to Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you. But the question is, will you put to death the flesh and yield to the Spirit? And especially when you come into this place. Because we've come together to remind ourselves and to sing about the great realities of our salvation. And so what we need to do is be sure that we're checking the flesh at the door. And we're coming into this place to walk in spiritual truths and be edifying and be helpful. Let the Spirit of God, through our gifting, through our service, and through our interactions with one another, help people to continue along the path of walking in the Spirit. Would you bow with me today as we have a time of invitation? And I just want to invite you to respond. And maybe there's some way that the Lord has convicted you, even in this, in a different way, to respond to Him. But in these moments, here's all I'm asking. Would you respond to make sure that you are walking in this essential experience that you need? Number one, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, never made that public, never come into the kingdom of God through repentance and faith, I would invite you just to come either during this time or after the service and let me know, let me walk through that with you. But you can exercise faith and be born again right there in that seat where you're sitting right now. Because it's a condition of the heart. Would you yield your heart to the living God confessing your need for him confessing that you know that Jesus died for you and for your sins and has paid every one of them fully and thank him for that accept that receive with open hands and open heart that gift today right where you sit would you open heart open your heart wide and let the spirit of God come in change you from the inside out. Number two. If you've already done that, you've experienced a new birth, would you just again commit yourself to walking by the Spirit? Yielding the flesh, asking God to help you to put away the old patterns of the old self that bring nothing but death. 
Lay those things on the altar. Lay them there at the cross. Ask him to empower you, to help you to walk in newness of life because that's your reality. That's what he wants for you and that's what he will do for you if you'll yield to him, yield to the Spirit today. We're just going to take a moment of, of quiet for you to respond in your heart to the Lord. Lord, I sense today that you are working. But this morning that your spirit is at work in hearts and minds. Very likely bringing about new birth, new Christians, new citizens of the kingdom of God. Lord, help us To walk in that. Pray for every person in this room. They're right where they sat today. They have given their heart to you. I pray that you would bring them an assurance that that is you, that it's a reality, that they belong to you, that they're forgiven of every trespass. And Lord, you're at work today showing us we're certainly not perfect and that we need to continue as worshipers coming together being encouraged and no longer walking in the darkness but walking in light Lord help this to be a place where we can admit our failures. In fact, that we must. Help this to be a place where we don't, though, wallow in our sins of the past and in our failures, but instead, we magnify the forgiveness that's ours. We sing about and we rejoice and we celebrate, God, your goodness and your empowering and all the gifts that you give us that come with our salvation. Lord, help this to be a place where people do experience this radical transformation and continue to come back week by week to rejoice in it, to exalt the one who has saved us and to lift high the loving Savior. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.